You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you so much for tuning in to Mama's Talking Loud. Kara and I love bringing these stories to you amplifying the journey of the hashtag working artist mom, supporting the struggle and striving to change the social safety net. But we need your help. If you haven't already, we would so appreciate it if you would follow, rate, and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is the way we bring awareness and change the narrative. And if you want more insight into our world, please follow us on Instagram at Mama's Talkin' Loud, on Twitter at Mama's Talkin' Pod, and on our website, www.mamastalkingloud.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Mama's Talking Loud. I'm Kara Cooper. And I'm Jessica Rush. This week's guest made her Broadway debut in King Charles III and was seen in the New York premiere of Paula Vogel and Tina Landau's A Civil War Christmas, as well as on your TV in numerous commercials, some of which she has filmed during the pandemic. She is the founder of Parent Artist Advocacy League, PAL, for Arts and Media, a national community, resource hub, and solutions generator for individuals with caregiver responsibilities and institutions who strive to support them. They recently released the PAL Handbook of Best Practices, a truly incredible resource not only for caregivers, but for the people who hire them. She is an advocate and changemaker like no other we know. Wrapping up our Women's History Month celebration, here is our conversation with the amazing Rachel Spencer Hewitt. This is the last one we're going to record where I'm on the West Coast. I know. Thank God. I'm just home. No more, <laughs> no more 7 a.m. podcast recording. <laughs> and just tag teaming anything, everything and anything. But Rachel, we are so excited that you're here. Oh my gosh. This is something that Jess and I have been talking about for so long, having you on the show and talking about all your incredible work. I mean, it's just so intertwined with our platform and what we what we want to shout from the rooftop so thank you so much oh, for being here thank you i'm a little emotional to be honest i'm super excited um because i'm grateful for the work that you do and how you uh, created a platform for these stories it's absolutely necessary and essential so who knows what's going to come out today but i'm oh. just happy to be here talking with you oh my gosh to our listeners and i'm sure plenty of you know rachel spencer hewitt but a compliment from her telling us, thanking us for our work just feels monumental because the amount of work that she does to amplify the caregiver struggle um, in our industry is astounding, uh, truly astounding. But let's jump off with what we jump off with all of our guests. Uh, can you tell us about your kids? Yes, I would love to. Um, I have two kids, age six and four. Um, my six-year-old is Ellery. She um, came out with sparkles and unicorns and is <laughs> the most feminine, lovely little girl I've ever met. And those my friends who grew up with me know that I'm a super tomboy. And so I have learned to love the feminine pleasures of life through her. Like I will wear heels and paint my nails and do all these things because I see the joy that it brings her when we do them together. So 
uh yeah she is um my 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 bundle of joy like literally an explosion and then my four-year-old is clark um who we also call the lion who we also call half puppy um where he will be (laughs) an animal half of the time um but that's also because he um has such a huge heart and uh, approaches the world very physically and um, loves Brazilian jiu-jitsu and uh, the Lion Guard that they listen to at night before bed. So those those are my kids, six and four. You can't get Look more out, fun here ages. Comes the Lion Guard. Yeah, 100%. Mom, I'm Kion, okay? You got it. The rest <laughs> of the day, <laughs> I better be a mama lion oh. or we have words. We have words. Oh gosh. I mean, I I feel like that's a skill set we're lucky to have because we are actors. We can like jump totally. into the imaginative play, but sometimes it is like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and, so, and I thought my son I thought, I thought it would clear up like by the time she was about five or six and it's still clear up and no I've been in now for like four years. No, I <laughs> was over it. I was asleep and he crawled into bed next to me and he was like, Mom, I'm the baby chipmunk, okay? And I was like, say yes and I was like, Yes, and I am the and he's like, And you're the mommy chipmunk. And I was like, I'm the mommy chipmunk. And I was like I was like, I am literally talking in my sleep. I don't know if I'm making any sense. He goes, No, mom, you climb up the tree and I'm like, I'm climbing up the tree. And like probably the worst performance of my life. But I I was like incoherent but it gave him it made him so happy to know that I was like referring to him that way and so I think I did my job but yes no sometimes the performance burnout can be real too in your own home it's like where are the equity breaks no nothing no no break no break here my four-year-old he most of the time he has us guess who he is and like he's like you know you know and I'm like I don't know you need to tell me You could literally be dozens of people. There are infinite possibilities here. Yeah, my that reminds me. My daughter um, has been using the phrase "you know what," because but she thinks it means you know the thing I'm thinking of, so I don't have to tell you. So she goes, and then she decided to you know what, (laughs) just ends the story there, and we're like, we don't know, we have no idea what happened. She's like, you know what? (laughs) Like I will never know. I will never know. Because I'm supposed to. Supposed oh, to oh my gosh. The the joys, the joys and pains of parenthood, but mostly joy. Let's for in this conversation for this moment. Um, I mean, I have to give them credit for keeping me warm, instant. to be honest. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, at night. There you go. Uh, so you, we want to jump right in and talk about PAL. Um, that's how we met Rachel. PAL is the Parent Artist Advocacy League for Arts and Media. Uh, it is a national community resource hub, solutions generator for individuals with caregiver responsibilities and institutions to, who strive to support them. So we've known you and about this for quite some time, but we've never talked about how it came to be, like how mm. this baby was birthed. Um, what, you know, obviously you saw a lack of support and did mm-hmm. something about it. But can you talk a little bit about how you birthed this baby? Yeah, that's a great way to put it too. Um, I just make it a little bit emotional, but it's cool, right? It's just the three of us. Um, yeah, so Pal started um, early, early on when my six-year-old uh, was about a year and a half old is when kind of the epiphany came. But um, to give a little backstory to that, when I was pregnant, I didn't tell anyone, um, not even my agents until I was about five months along, right? This is a super common story. We all know now where we hide our pregnancies. And I, you know, in so much retrospection, I've realized that it's because going through my 20s, like with all the harassment and everything, I didn't trust the industry with my body. So I had learned by the time I got pregnant, I'm not telling anyone. They, they have, they're going to have no idea what to do with me in a way that's dignified and respectful. Well, I'm figuring this out too. But then at five months, I was like, all right, the flowy tops and leggings just aren't doing it anymore to keep the secret. So I've got to tell my agent. Um, and, you know, I set up a meeting with him very professionally. I shut the door and he was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And I was like, okay, so this is on a need to know basis with the casting directors. I'm not announcing it, but you should know so you can plan. I'm pregnant. And I was super serious about it. He was like, that's amazing. And he leapt out of his seat. He (laughs) threw the door open and he announced it to the rest of the office. And like my face is beat red, but I'm super relieved and totally confused. But I did not expect this welcome. And, you know, looking back, 
He's a father. His wife's a, a lawyer. They're like this, these incredible humans. They get it. And so he was clearly ready to celebrate this moment with me as, as a positive. And to his credit, that set a standard for me of how it should always be. I was like, that's the response. You not only say yes and, you celebrate the person, and then you let everyone else know we are celebrating this person. He became an instant ally in that office for me. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. Um, my next audition, I was like, great. So he's probably going to tell them there was a miscommunication somehow at the audition. Um, <laughs> the director didn't know, and he was kind of uh, not as generous of a human being. And I and I write about this on my blog. But I went in and uh, did the scene, totally crushed it. It was like, yeah, Shakespeare. And then the casting director asked me, she goes, I, I, I want to ask, um, uh, just, just curious, um, please answer with if you're comfortable, are you pregnant? And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I thought, I thought my agent would tell you. She goes, no, but congratulations. And then she was ready to go to the positive, and the director next to her, he's this older British man, was like, oh, but could you do it? And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? Could I, could I do it? And he was like, you know, the show, could you do it? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was ready to stand on my own. And again, the casting director stepped in and she goes, oh, of course she could do it. I cast so-and-so after giving birth. So throughout the early pregnancy, I learned, I don't know who's behind the table. I was really lucky to experience people to celebrate me, but I went into every room with the question of, do I have to stand on my own? Am I going to have to defend myself? Do I have to come with all the answers? And when you're already hoping to get a job and an audition, that shouldn't be what you have to think about. So I really just decided, well, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to be the best like kick-ass mom and performer. Nobody's going to be able to tell. Um, and then I did that up until she was a year and a half and turning down 95% of the additions that came in because I'd be paying the babysitter more, right? And being like, oh, that's the sacrifice. Those are the battle scars. And then I was at a Christmas party with, a, with you know, uh, all the colleagues uh, that I went to school with, yada, yada. I won't go into who, but I was talking with a childless male individual who approached me and was like, hey, how are you? with like a really like somber tone, like expecting to uh, receive like a really morose story. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm doing great. I've got this can-do attitude, you know, um, that was working for me at the time. I was like, my agents are really supportive. And he stopped me and he said, oh, well, that's not everyone's story. So I wouldn't share that. And to be silenced in that moment froze me. And I just felt this heat go all over my body. and the room froze. And I always say it's like that Robert Downey Jr. Um, Sherlock Holmes where everything freezes except for the things in the room. He's about to like punch and kick and like smash. And I was just shocked. And I was instantly painfully aware ugh, that in that moment, my daughter was with the babysitter a few blocks away at a Starbucks where <laughs> I had changed in the bathroom for the party so I could you know, show up for these people like she didn't exist. And then to be silenced on top of that was absolutely the final straw, like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I I could only think in that moment, I wish I had like a really clever phrase that I said to him, but I think all that came out of my mouth was, huh. And so I left that party. I got her from the sitter and I found the bar where they had all gathered and I paraded her in front of everybody and she was screaming her head off because it was the middle of the night. And I was like, scream louder, <laughs> let them hear you. And then on the bus ride back to Philadelphia, because I had commuted two and a half hours to make this party work, all I could think was, if I'm being silenced about my successes, what are they doing to these women who are not feeling those successes? Who are they? Where can I find them? And I just became so obsessed with turning things around. So instead of taking his advice and not talking to people about it, I decided to publish a blog about it. And I took all my journals from auditioning while pregnant. And I was like, this is insane. <laughs> Nobody would believe it. I'm not going to believe it when I get older. I've got to write it down. And I published the blog auditioningmom.com. And I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just 
you know, my privileged experiences, I started a series, What She Looks Like, which is an interview with mother artists. And um, I expected, again, to kind of be isolated. But what I'm sure you're all finding is that in publishing that, messages started pouring in and some very private messages about, you know, organizations that didn't have maternity leave, um, organizations breaking the law, women getting fired when they were pregnant. And I was like, this is, this goes way deeper than, than just like the, uh, the audacious misogyny and discrimination. This is people's livelihoods. So I started researching Ma'am Ireland and um, Pippa UK and writing about them in HowlRound, which is a theater journal. And a friend of mine said, we need this. We need this in the U.S. Her name is Jill Harrison, founder of Directors Gathering, an incredible organization. And I said, let's do it. And we got together with three other moms. And in four months, we had pulled together to launch PAL in New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia. And we dedicated the first year to motherhood breaking the silence because I knew that I had um, – <laughs> I hadn't afraid to like defy him in that moment, but I, I wanted to create space where um, other people had that support to defy anyone telling them to be quiet as well. And that's, that's how it started. And it just kind of um, took off from there. We now have over 15 chapter cities around the country. So yeah, thank you. I just, it's still hard to tell that story. That's how it started. <laughs> oh, Rachel. I mean, it just, my heart hurts. My soul hurts hearing that. And I, you know, I, what I take away from it in the moment, obviously, is just how, what you have created from that pain and from that experience. And I think of my own time, like when I was hesitant to tell my agents that I was pregnant, like yeah. I, we all have that moment, yeah. right? I mean, there's this, there is, um, you know, Kara and I have talked before about how many dads there were at Jersey Boys, but she was the first person, the first woman mm. to be pregnant wow. at that show. And by the time that happened, we were already halfway through the 11 year run. I mean, it was like year seven or something like that when she That's finally, um, when that happened and, and the response was great, but I do think there is a, you know, we tend to wait longer. We tend to put it off. When will it be time? How will people receive it? I was terrified to tell my agents. I had only signed with them like a year before and we shouldn't have that. There shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, it, it should be something to be celebrated always. Like Casey Levy said when she was on with us, you know, her truth bomb was, you know, when you hire an actor, you're hiring a whole person and Absolutely. we come with children. And I'm reminded of actually something that Ann Court said with us, Jess, you know, when you had your daughter at a Starbucks with a babysitter and brought her, you know, to like show everyone, this is my life and my life as a mother has worth. But what she said is the time for children as contraband is over. Children are a part of everybody's lives. They are not contraband. They don't make us less than. They make us more than. They don't devalue us. They make us more valuable. They are, we are contributing to society. Um, you know, and I, I mean, you literally, you had your daughter next door as contraband. You literally had her hiding away because you couldn't have that part of you be visible to your coworkers. I got, oh, and even just, I, like, I mean, I can feel it like so many social gatherings, which is so much a part of our industry and networking exactly. and who you know and what doors you can get into. I mean, I don't go to 90% of those because it's going to cost me to get a babysitter. And it's the, 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 if I've spent too much time away from my family to begin with, it feels like I'm taking more away from them. You know, the, the amount that I have said no to, like you said, um, I can't even count. I can't even begin yeah. to count. But what I was also floored by is that you, in that moment of you were having success at what cost, at a cost clearly, right, right. to you um, and your family. But in that moment, you said, how are the people feeling who aren't having success, who are met with all these challenges and haven't even been given these opportunities? Um, and so, I mean, what you have done with PAL is just, it's just incredible. And for anybody out there, if you haven't dove into it, please do. It is an incredible resource. Um, 
you've created grants for people, uh, childcare grants. Um, you had COVID relief grants, um, which kind of moves us to the next thing. You've been like unbelievably prolific during the pandemic. Your work, your output, I mean, we see it. It has been astonishing. I mean, I have to just say, I used to think Rachel Spencer Hewitt got a lot done and took so many names, but you have like leveled up <laughs> in a way, in a yeah. way. I mean, Karen, I've talked about this for years since we met you, Rachel, we'd be like, oh my God, how does she do all this? She's like, she responds so quickly. She's on it. She's thinking ahead. She's doing all these things. I was just like, I don't even know how she does it. And now you have taken it to a new level. Yeah. Um, and that takes full transparency. So in in the pandemic, I had a reverse scenario where um, before the shutdown, um, I was solo parenting and homeschooling and working a full-time job. And then there was a time when I booked a show on top of that. And it, I think it almost killed me. Um, I actually did go to a physician and say, I need to have my heart checked. It was hard. And then the shutdown happened right when I, you know, kind of had that awakening of, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting so much done, but am I thinking about, you know, my health? Am I, am I having this consideration? So when the shutdown happened and I saw all of these parents, you know, suddenly have to, which is not homeschooling crisis school, their children and expect to work and expect to be artists and expect, I was like, oh, no way. I know firsthand that this is going to cost people their lives and their health and their livelihoods. And right around the time um, the shutdown happened, we had registered our kids for school because I, I said to my husband, I was like, something has to give. He was so excited because he had been campaigning for me to get help somewhere because it, it like wasn't going to come. <laughs> it wasn't going to come at home. And he was like, let's get him in school. So when the shutdown happened, he works in the medical field and they opened for essential workers. So I experienced help for the first time in the pandemic. And when you say my productivity leveled up, it's because our, our theory has been proven when the smallest amount of support makes the greatest amount of impact for a mother's productivity and an ability to get sleep and work. Um, and so almost Instantly, we put the emergency grants together, the PAL COVID emergency grants for artists with families, because I went into the shutdown knowing firsthand what that sort of being tethered to your space, having all the responsibility on yourself and worried for your health at the same time felt like. And I was like, these parents are going to need money. They're going to need money. When you are maxed out, everything costs more. There's no opportunity for creating a buffer space and, and buffer time for yourself. I saw, you know, we were all losing jobs left and right. My day job was digital. I had a huge, huge amount of privilege there because I had to work from home when I had kids. And so I, I had that that pivot in place. And so I just leaned into that work. But with PAL, I was like, okay, what infrastructure did I need when it, it was all on my shoulders? And the emergency grants was one. And then we created digital meetups, which was a huge part of what kept me sane at the same time. I was like, parents aren't able to meet in person. We all need relationships. So we started meeting once a month. We started talking about resumes and how to, you know, um, have, have new employment opportunities. So my productivity is coming from the proven formula of there is now help in place. My children have care. And what I can do with my time now is make sure that I put that in place for other parents and that it stays in place when we, you know, quote unquote, return. When the theaters are rebuilding now, I can say with proof, you need to rebuild with care and support. Because let me tell you what my life was like before the pandemic. Let me tell you the difference it's made now. And let me tell you the difference that it's going to make for parents afterwards because we're going to be returning with a lot of this still in our lives. So you've seen, you've seen the proof, like, you know, the effect of caregiver support and you've known this for a long time. Um, but obviously yeah. you've just lived through it. Um, and during this time you have birthed this other baby, another, you just keep birthing babies, Rachel. <laughs> um, but the handbook of best practices, we would love to talk about that. Um, and I'm sure this experience during this time has uh, even educated you further to yes. 
support people. Yes. So the handbook has been in the works uh, since PAL started. Um, in gathering these stories, it was just so clear to me that uh, that there was actually solutions out there. I started also hearing stories about theaters that had done things well. Um, uh, Inika Cedar, who's on our advisory board, was one of the co-researchers for the project Women's Leadership in Lort Resident Theaters. And I connected with her very early on because um, her work was all about what are the obstacles facing women in leadership. And there was an entire chapter on caregiving. And she said, yes, but you know, when we first did the study, um, it didn't come up. And before we published our results, we said, the, um, I believe it was Carly Perloff who commissioned the study, said, you need to go back. And you need to develop questions that investigate because this is absolutely part of the conversation. This is years ago. So they went back and they received responses, you know, everything from people saying, well, would you ask a man that question? Like becoming very defensive to, um, well, I, I'm just so used to not talking about that because it's a liability. So there's a beautiful chapter in this research uh, publication, this report that's, that that essentially it concludes that there is a situation of silence around family responsibilities and caregiving in the theater. And when I found that somebody had written that in a report, I was like, we need to talk because this is the work that I'm doing. And we've, we've partnered since then. Um, but I started to develop a handbook because as I was reaching out, people said, you know, who did this well was so-and-so. And I asked Inika, I was like, what surprised you the most about women who did become leaders? Because I'm finding that there are some institutions um, that that are doing this well. And she said, well, what surprised us most was that most of the time women in leadership where they felt most successful was when they started their own companies. And I started noticing a pattern too, in terms of in organizations that had support mm. is that when, when women, when caregivers with, with generous perspectives are able to create their own structures, they thrive better. And so I started to seek out, well, who are these people? And people like Ariana Smart Truman, who is with Elevator Repair Service, who also created um, caregiver support with the Wooster Group, the team um, in New York. These are organizations that simply grew with their families, that when it became a reality, they're like, we're going to yes hand these people. But what I realized is that because that those solutions existed in those pockets, discrimination could thrive in the spaces in between. And that's why people like us... Um, didn't know what rooms we were walking into. We didn't know if the person behind the table was going to celebrate us or discriminate against us. And I was like, if people knew what their rights were, they could at least be equipped when the person behind the table does the wrong thing. And if organizations knew that we knew what our rights were, then they would invest in educating themselves. They need to be trained. They need to be taught. The majority of institutions can't afford human resources. That doesn't mean that you're allowed to break the law. So who is out there putting this together to say, congratulations, you're pregnant. You don't have to do this alone. Here is a vast research project on all the institutions who have done it right. And you can use this as the standard, you know, just like my agent was for me at the very beginning. Let's set the standard. Um, it has taken so many years because PAL still doesn't have anyone on salary. Like it's, um, we just have a few stipends for people. Um, and it's been a volunteer project. Um, but it was able to be published um, this year because uh, we finally have a five-person leadership team now. So the opportunity for people to take on different projects has come in and I've been able to focus on it. But the the biggest thing about publishing it was also because theaters are in a place of rebuilding and I know that they're ready for it now. Um, they're more interested in saying, how do we create sustainable structures? Because clearly what we had was not working. Um, how do we have the conversation of the intersection of anti-racism and caregiving? What do you do when, you know, you're so focused on the anti-racist work, you don't realize that you are removing job opportunities from the black mother who has already experienced discrimination in the medical field and hospitals? Um, how do we have gender inclusion when you don't know not only that caregiving responsibilities affect majority women, but that also transgender and non-binary parents have zero support socially and medically when it comes to understanding their parenting needs? But if you say this to a leader without any resources, they're going to become overwhelmed because they're already strapped. But now what we say is online, in your pocket, because it's available on mobile. I optimized it for mobile. I designed the website myself. I know it works. You have your rights in your pocket. You also have an entire division 
of caregiver support called PAL, where you can say, we don't have the bandwidth to do the research ourselves, but now that the resources are, are available, we have the obligation to apply them. Who, who on your management leadership team is reading this handbook? Hopefully anyone who makes decisions. So it's everything from samples of rehearsal schedules for people who are breastfeeding, chest feeding, or pumping. What does that look like with equity breaks? Um, how to create a lactation space that is not only compliant with the law, but also humane and dignified. So the handbook, it's part of our curriculum called compassion training that we do with organizations where we say, ask these three questions in this order. Is it legal? Is it ethical? And is it compassionate? And that's how you need to develop caregiver support. Start with what the law requires, then move on to say, okay, the law doesn't require this, but is it right to do? And then beyond that, say, it may be right to do, but does this person feel psychologically safe, physically safe, socially safe? Um, And that's how you take something from, okay, we know you're not allowed to force someone to pump in a bathroom, but don't stick them in a room that's dirty and dingy with no chair either. So here's a chapter of the handbook to help you set that room up with a shopping list of things that are priced reasonably for how to create that space. Um, And then also wonderful contributions from people like Nicole Brewer, who is an anti-racist facilitator, um, talking about language and cultural support for um, Black and and, uh, Indigenous and parents of color. Basically, there are going to be over 50 pieces, you know, by the end of this weekend and definitely by the time this podcast airs, 50 chapters of case studies, interviews and research on on the law and, and other solutions so that there are no excuses anymore. The goal of the handbook is to elevate the standard of care for caregivers in our country, in the performing arts and media so that when we return, the goal is that it will be a surprise if an institution doesn't have a caregiver support plan. You know, I've, I'm, I'm pretty much done having these stories of, wow, congratulations, you support caregivers. I want that to be the expectation now. And I want it to be a surprise of, oh my gosh, you don't have a caregiver plan. Here's who you can contact to develop one. That should be the surprise. You should enter the room expecting celebration. And if there's a surprise that there is no celebration, know where to put that person so that the obligation doesn't fall on the caregiver to teach them. That is amazing. <laughs> Rachel, I just, I mean, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of how many times you don't even bring up, you know, you get an offer for an out of town gig and you're scared to even ask about housing because you have a child, but um, if I ask about it, will they just take the offer back? Because that happens. I mean, the, there are these things that we have not been set up for success in this industry. And I think so much of it has to do with, you know, for so long it wasn't, it was, you know, it's what who our industry has been created around, so to speak, is for the single person, essentially, and definitely not for the parent. And um, we can see that with our health insurance situation alone. Um, But we, for so long, women wouldn't even bring it to the table. It wasn't even part of the conversation because we were, we just knew that um, there weren't options (laughs) the way people were, you know, treating us. Um, And, uh, and so you would leave the business. And so to have this place, and we think a lot, obviously the conversation is with regard to anti-racism right now, but also there has been discrimination of another form and that is against caregivers and parents in our business. And I think that people haven't given it weight. You have, and, and, and now we're moving forward and we're being able to make it all better because when you know better, you do better. Thank you, Ms. Maya Angelou. But it's true. Like we have been discriminated against as the caregivers and that's men and women that is transgender non-binary people that is anyone who is a caregiver and that sort of leads us to the fact you talk about um how how underrepresented underrepresented the BIPOC community is um for systemic reasons right and so during the pandemic you guys talked about the three pal has released the three pillars of justice which elucidates how intertwined gender parity and anti-racism truly are. Um, if you would elaborate on that for us, because I think we think about, um, we, we keep them separate, the anti-racism and the gender parity, and they are so one and the same in this situation, I believe. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I think it's one of the greatest mistakes an institution can make, which is to say we don't have time for the other issues of inclusion because we're focusing on anti-racism. And anyone who would be supported by anti-racist efforts at an institution knows that human beings do not fit into compartments. That's why the term intersectionality comes from the fact that Black women specifically, historically, were discriminated against because of their gender and because of their race. So uh, an institution could discriminate against a Black woman, but say, look, we don't discriminate against race because we hire Black men. And, um, you know, suffragettes could say, no, we are for women because, look, we fight for the right to vote, but they only fought for the right to vote for white women. So it, it was this intersection for Black women specifically where the term intersectionality comes from, where they said, no, you are using every opportunity to show yourselves moral in compartments. But I like the, the but but when a black woman has the intersection of both of those realities, um, they are at the greatest likelihood to be discriminated against. And that's why PAL centers our mission on focusing how do we create solutions for those who are most vulnerable? We don't create the easy solutions for those who who start off with privilege. We say, who does not have access to your spaces? Um, and the three pillars of justice are one, you cannot have an anti-racist organization without formal caregiver support because the individuals who will need it most are black mothers and black transgender parents. Two, you cannot have gender parity or gender inclusion without formal caregiver support because the majority of people who will be at the disadvantage because of your lack of caregiver support will be women and other marginalized genders like transgender and non-binary individuals. And three, you cannot support reproductive rights without formal caregiver support. One of my greatest frustrations is that our industry will sometimes use the word choice as an opportunity to absolve themselves from communal responsibility. It was your choice to have a baby. And they weaponize this word to throw the responsibility back on the individual who's asking for help, who has the audacity to say, in order for me to contribute to this passion that I love, I need a little help. And then they weaponize the word choice to say, we don't have to. Um, and that comes from a classist idea that everyone has kids when they want to, how they want to, and then they have the finances to support it. Um, and it's really about removing this idea that, you know, family rights and opportunities are a middle-class luxury when it's actually a right for every single individual who wants to choose to thrive in that direction. And so choice can never be weaponized. It's always the individual's term to use for agency. And then when, when we talk about communal responsibility, we're saying if you have the mission and the intention to become an anti-racist organization, you have to ask, okay, but are we creating a psychological safe space for a black woman, a black man to enter our space and be perceived as someone who deserves support in their entire life? And that includes their caregiving responsibilities. And this is also important because we are also um, lacking as an industry in supporting artists throughout their lifetime. So caregiving also includes elder care. What happens when your parents get sick? What happens when you have a family member who has to come live with you? What happens when you have a family member who you know is a, has disabilities and you're going to be the one responsible in the future for taking care of them? We are terrified of those conversations because we don't even know how to help the most privileged parents and caregivers. So for someone to say, I might have an emergent scenario, um, we're learning right now in COVID that we don't know what care means in our industry. So that's where the conversation about parenting is important. It's because it's connected to the conversation of how do we treat care in our structures? And that's sustainability. That's intergenerational legacy. That's future theater appreciators. That's connecting theater for young audiences to theater for more grown audiences. And then having the conversation of why are we having a hard time drawing students and college kids to our box office? It's because they've been rejected from our spaces since the beginning. And so we're creating our own problems and we are removing the opportunity to create support for restorative justice, for racial justice, for gender parity and inclusion, and to really show that we mean it when we say, you have the right to make a choice to shape your family how you want to. And here's how we're going to support that.
Love it. It, it, it. I'm sure you read this article and I keep referencing it, I feel like, in every one of our episodes. But the, um, the New York Times magazine talked about the undervaluing of caregivers mm. in our country, in our world. And I think that it all boils down to that. Like we don't value the people who take care of people who literally do the most important work in our world. Like who are we without the people who don't, who take care of us? Who are we? You know, and the fact that we don't give any value to that in our society. And it is so disproportionate um, when it comes to race, the majority Absolutely. of caregivers for their own families and then who are hired by the privileged are people, are women of color and their jobs are not uh, valued, you know, and I just, it makes my blood boil and I become so inarticulate about it. And you're so good at really honing in on it, um, Rachel. So I so appreciate it that, but I just feel like, how do we move forward from this time when it has been clearer than ever that care is the most important. Those are the essential people in this world, you know, not the people who work in the ivory towers and move people's money around, you know, that it is the people who care for people and how to create these theaters that support that so we can move forward in a more just and equal world and equal way. Yeah. I don't say it anywhere as eloquently as you do, Rachel, but. <laughs> no, it's so important because you're pointing out the domestication bias, right? That is rooted in racism. That um, I, was, I was having a conversation yeah. with a theater recently uh, who was talking about rebuilding. And something that we say in a session with each of them is you can't set precedent on privilege. So the how of this all, I think, is that we need to educate ourselves that caregiving applies to everyone. We're all caregivers at some point in our lives. And so if we can find that empathy to say, what sort of support would I hope to have in this position? And then from then, educate ourselves on what support is needed right then in the moment. Um, you know, at Powell, we do compassion training. We say compassion is where empathy meets education because that's how it can lead us to proper action. Um, and just, just to emphasize what you were saying before, um, family rights are protected by federal and state law for us to also educate ourselves on like what's being asked, what's being required. And then by listening to the stories of caregivers saying, this is a necessity. Caregivers are such a wonderful contribution to an organization too. I just want to emphasize that creating support for caregivers is not just being the beneficiary. Creating support for caregivers is actually creating access in your institution for individuals who are so good at the pivot because it's part of their survival. They're individuals who know what it means to consider others in the space. They're individuals who knows who know what it means to say, I'm tired, let's power share. That's the only way we're going to survive this. There are individuals who say, there are people in the room with voices not as large as mine. How do I, how do I tap into what they need? And the incredible work culture that can shift by allowing caregiver voices and caregiver experiences into the space, in my opinion, actually improves the sustainability of our field because it changes how we develop and how we produce things. Absolutely. I mean, that makes so much sense to me. I, I want to have a moment of honesty here. I mean, I'm a place, I have no filter, but I, I, I just want to say like, I'm hearing all this and I get so excited and so stirred up and I'm so hopeful for what is to come, but there is a part of me and this is how like deeply ingrained it is. I believe, you know, that there is that part of me that's like, ugh. But what if you tell the people they have to do these things at these institutions and then instead they just run the other way and so then they don't because it's just overwhelming or because it's such a shift from what they were doing and and then they won't hire me. And so, I mean, I truly, this is, it's so deep, right? It's real because it's real. But you've taken that responsibility. That's right. Like it is real, but you literally are giving them, you're like, here you go. Like they're, they're I know, no but I just keep it's hearing right here them for you in this handbook. Right. I know, but I keep hearing like money and oh, it's too much. Oh, we can't shift our think. I mean, they would never tell you that, but like, I just think that like if I'm getting overwhelmed hearing about it in certain ways, and I'm a person who's here for it in all the ways, like and actively trying to amplify voices, I can only imagine when you're that old white dude who's running this theater, who 
who, you know, who can't shift or can't, I mean, are they? Yes. Oh, let me, let me make very clear. This is so important to point out because sometimes I think the, like the mission of palace conflated with the expectation of the individual and they're very different. So I've had, you know, I've had moms say like, I'm so sorry, I should be visible parenting. And I'm like, oh, absolutely not. Please know that still to this day, you make the choices that best support you. You make those choices individually that make you feel safe, that make you feel cared for. If you're like, I am not ready to bring this up at work because I will experience repercussions, don't. Talk to someone outside of work. Talk to someone about like how you can find an ally in your workspace. Talk to someone about how you can find that communal care when it's not being provided to you inside the workplace walls or the workplace Zooms. PAL is there. We have free HR office hours that people can connect with someone in human resources to say, how do I have this conversation with my boss? We have community meetups where you're like, my job is not ready to have this conversation, so I just need to talk to people who hear me. The whole goal of PAL is to take the obligation of this conversation off of the individual because for too long it has been on us to reach in a, from a vulnerable place where our job is at risk to reach up towards employment and say, you need to do these things. So what we want people to do is actually feel a relief from that pressure where just you go into the audition thinking about your audition, right? And then how, like I tell people all the time, I'm like, tell me about your boss. I don't work for them because then I have the opportunity and we have done this before where people have said, we need you to write a letter. We need you to write an email. And we've done it where we've written to them and we're like, you can make this decision to not provide housing to this person, but please know you're not doing it in the dark. Please know that we know about it. And here's our recommendations for how you can do it differently. And we'd love to speak to your board on how to raise money to, to make this possible for you because we want to be a resource for those institutions as well. We have training for how to speak to boards, how to include it in your grant, your like grant applications to create childcare support. We have worked with producers everywhere from, you know, small local theaters to Broadway to say, you have an individual who needs your help. We know how to make this legal. We know how to develop a childcare grant. What can we do to help you? We'll do a match grant with you. We'll give you $250 if you come with the other $250 to give them $500 on Tech Week. And we put it in super digestible terms. But what we don't want is for the individual to spend any more of their resources trying to get their workplaces to do the right thing. And, and that's what we're here for. So I just want to say that I hear that. And that is exactly the sort of fear that we want to alleviate first is to say, yes, absolutely. It is too much to any more go into these spaces alone and say, God, I hope they don't fire me for this. Or I hope they don't hire me and then like give me the cold shoulder. I hope I'm not seen as difficult. I'm, I hope I'm not seen as replaceable. And just say like, hey, go in and audition. See what's provided to you. If you have questions or need help, reach out to us and we're going to walk in with you. Like that's the goal. I, I, okay. I just need to point something out that you mentioned earlier where you said there are no salaried positions on PAL. The amount of work that you just let us know you do on a regular basis, I just cannot begin to express how grateful I am to you for what you do. I mean, Jessica and I talk about it all the time that we're busting our butts during this time and not seeing any sort of financial um reward for it, you know, that we are working so hard because it's something that we're so passionate about and it doesn't even compare to the work that you are doing, Rachel. So please, from the bottom of my heart, and I know our listeners will feel the same way, the work that you are doing is so valuable and so appreciated. And I I just I do think that you are going to see the fruits of your labor um really come to pass with the you know the rebirth of theater as we as we will come to see it in hopefully a couple months um and we are here to amplify you and to you know turn people toward you who need support but also to support you as well because i can't imagine the weight that you carry on your shoulders being this resource for these women because that's what we do right we like we lift each other up and we carry each other and we take on each other's pain. And it's, you know, for artists, it's really hard not to do that. <laughs> um, it's really hard not to feel. Um, so I can't imagine that, that what you, what you carry with you. So thank you. Truly. Thank you. I mean, honestly, we're in this together. We are in this together. That's all I have to say. It's like, that's how it's going to get done. 
keep sharing these stories. What you do is so important. It's so important to keeping the conversation alive. We can never underestimate the power of sharing our story. I mean, Pal started when I started writing my blog and collecting the stories of motherhood and making sure that they were as diverse and dynamic as possible so that we understood this need on a scope. The answer to the solutions I have always believed exists in the stories of our need. And that's why it's essential that we center BIPOC mothers because their need is the greatest and therefore they are the greatest recipients of not only the solutions but also the greatest voices in terms of being agents of change and they deserve nothing but our support. And one of the ways that PAL does that is through the child care grants and ensuring that the greatest amount is designated for a mother artist of color and coming up in this next year we designated specifically for a black artist, for an indigenous artist, for a mother artist of color, to make sure that our support is actionably centering BIPOC mothers. And the way that you two are gathering stories and sharing these stories publicly is all part of this ecosystem of building support because we can never underestimate the power of storytelling, which we as artists completely understand. Another resource that I want to make sure to mention is that if anyone does find themselves in a situation where they need legal counsel and you know they don't know if they have the money or they don't know who to go to um is we always recommend at pal we always recommend going to work life law you can go to worklifelaw.org and you can find a website that's full of legal professionals who specialize in family rights discrimination they can help you have conversations with your healthcare provider have conversations uh, with your boss have conversations with them about what the next steps can be. Um, on the PAL site, we want to make sure that in the handbook we quote them and we make sure that it's linkable because there are legal resources for artists with families as well, and we'll be you know, doing more collaborations with them. But I want to make sure that anyone who's listening who thinks they need legal support in this way or who may need legal support in the future knows that work-life law is there to help support them. Well, let's – no, thank you. I can't. I just bow down. <laughs> Truly. True. Uh, we always start to ask a little bit of, I guess, an engagement question, although I don't know if anybody will have something that's as uh, worth to add to this conversation as you will. But what, what is the number one change, and it may be hard to really specify, the number one change you would like to see in support of caregivers as we return to work? Like, what is one, one actionable nugget? that our employers can do and i don't know if it can even be succinctly said but yeah um i i do offer one usually when someone's like what's one thing i can do right now um if if you have zero budget like literally zero i have two answers for this the number one thing is create a caregiver affinity space in your workplace and if there's only one caregiver connect with another organization where the caregivers can communicate and gather because sharing stories is where you find the solutions. Um, our solutions exist in our stories of need. So if you have zero dollars, like I mean literally zero, not like oh, we're only a $6 million organization, so we have zero. I mean literally zero. Caregiver affinity spaces. If you are an organization who's working on your budgets right now, the number one thing you can do is put a budget line item for a caregiver fund for reimbursements. Make financial support part of your budget because your budget is the narrative of your mission, not your website. So if your website says, we are interested in intersectional action and creating access and inclusion, but your budget says another story and caregivers are not present, you're not telling the truth. So that's the number one thing you can do. Where is your budget line item? And we say, start with $500 per caregiver. You can budget that. If you can't, talk to Pal. We can help you figure it out. Number one, caregivers on the budget. Period. Stop. Yeah, that's what I would say. And then read the rest of the handbook because it will help you. <laughs> I love it. There you go. You heard it, guys. Caregiver support is not only possible, but uh, has to happen. I, again, I'm having a brain power down moment. Yeah. Good golly. <laughs> Kara. It's not just possible. It is a mandate for all theaters. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, because so often we can't even, you know, we do these 99, 99. <laughs> Not any 99 cent, that's LA, but we do like, you know, our stage readings where we get a hundred dollar stipend and, you know, we have to 
put out so much more than that just to have childcare in order to be able to make the investment. You know, my husband always talks about these readings, like, well, it's an investment. You know, when we realize that it's only a hundred dollars for, you know, hours and hours of our time. And, um, but it's the investment, hopefully it'll pay off in the end. But also when a single person or someone with who is not a caregiver takes that hundred dollar gig, it's not a big deal. It's like, okay, well, what else would I be doing? Maybe going to the gym or like, you know, hanging out, watching Netflix. But when you have a child or a person that you have to have caregiving for, that $100 investment of your time becomes hundreds of dollars of investment. I mean, just the fact that we have to pay, you know, I remember, you know, especially when Elliot was smaller, paying $90 for three hours, or, you know, for, I guess, maybe like $60 for three hours to go to an audition to try to get a job when you're not even uh, employed, you know? So it's just that. The sheer cost, the fact that the number one thing people could do is put something in their budget to help at all. It takes so little. I've said this before about other things. It takes so little for us to feel valued and supported within our theater uh, family and institution and community. And, 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 you know, I feel badly sometimes say that because it makes us seem like we will <laughs> we'll take scraps. But we really, there has been for so long, for so long there's been nothing. That truly, when you do the smallest amount, it goes so far. Yes, yes. And if somebody wants the actual numbers on this, there is a chapter on creating a caregiver fund. Um, and we interviewed institutions that have radical parent support. Like, they're like, we'll pay for the plane ticket for your caregiver to travel with you, right? So we talked to them, like, how much does this cost? Because that's really what scares leaders, right? Is they're like, it's too expensive. And and I'm like, based on what numbers? And always the numbers are based on fear. Because when we talk to leaders who have actually done it, the numbers that they give us is they're like, consistently, year after year, it's less than 2% of our annual budget. That is such a manageable number. Anyone who runs those budgets knows that less than 2% of the annual budget for radical parent support and caregiver support is achievable. And we're not even asking that. We're just saying, like, reimburse some of these child care expenses and elder care expenses so that at Tech Week, I'm not in the negative. Um, when we talk about the percentage that it costs an individual, it's upwards of 150% of their show budget. Right. So when we're saying if you think it's okay to ask a parent, well, you just need to save better for your 150 percent above your budget. But we're not willing as an institution to say, like, you know what, maybe we can apply more for under two percent of our budget. Then really what we're having a conversation about is power dynamics and who's being centered in this conversation. Yeah, it's it's it takes very, very little to make a very big difference. And I was just going to say the the new standard of care is up on the website for free. Three pillars of justice, 11 action items. You can use it as a checklist. You know, pick one. Just like whatever works for you. Go for it. Yeah. Amazing. Mic drop. Rachel, <laughs> you, thank you. I'm, I mean, like Kara said, we've wanted to talk to you for ages because we are so in awe of what you do. And we know what just having this podcast has done for our own selves, for community or um, the way it feels when people do reach out and say, oh my God, this helped me so much, or I felt so connected, particularly in this year, and, and what that feels like just as a human being, um, and, and how that feeds our souls. And to know that for six years, you've been working on this, and you're putting it out there, and that the, reaper, the, the effects will be felt for years to come, hopefully, and it is there, and you are making actual change, actual change. Not just like, oh, it helped me feel better for a little while. This is actual change that you're doing, and we, we, we are so grateful. Thank you. And thank you for being here today, and thank you for joining us and all that you do and all that PAL does. You thank guys, you, you got to go check it out. Check out PAL, Rachel Spencer Hewitt, her brainchild. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, um, and then maybe, you know, put it into, into action yeah. and help maybe give back a little bit when you Absolutely. Thank y'all so much for this opportunity to talk. I just appreciate you. Likewise. Be well, Rachel. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Mama's Talking Loud. Special shout outs to Rachel Spencer Hewitt for our fabulous graphic, Kristen Anderson Lopez, Bobby Lopez, and Justin Ward Weber for our awesome theme song. Our producers, Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and of course, the Broadway Podcast Network for bringing us to you. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.